Chapter 23 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Brandywine in Germantown. The Story of the Flag. Washington and Green, and indeed the greater number of American generals, had expected that as a matter of course Howe would take part of his army at least and move from New York up the Hudson to join the forces of John Burgoyne. Just why he did not do this is still a matter of wonder, but two reasons are given as the causes of his failure to move. One was the advice of his traitorous prisoner, Charles Lee, who was explaining to the British commander just how the rebellion could be crushed, and the other was the report of the success which had attended the first actions of Burgoyne's invading army. When Fort Ticonderoga was abandoned by the Americans, without a gun having been fired in its defense, and when the American army fled as it did before the Redcoats, very naturally Howe concluded that Burgoyne, with St. Ledger's aid, would be able to take care of himself, and so he, Howe, would be free to follow out his own design, which was to seize the rebel capital, Philadelphia. The fact that by seizing that town he would be between the southern and northern colonies with his army, a division which the expected victorious advance of John Burgoyne would also greatly aid, seems to have been the purpose in Howe's mind, for otherwise Philadelphia, as a center of warlike operations, was not very important. Washington and his little army of only about 10,000 men were still in the highlands of New Jersey, and when in June, 1777, Howe, with a force of 18,000 men, Clinton had been left in New York with the rest of his army, started to march across New Jersey, Washington quickly moved down from his stronghold and took a position near New Brunswick at Middlebrook. The place was too strong to be attacked and yet the British did not dare to pass it and leave the old fox, as Washington was called, with such a force behind them. So Howe, after some skirmishing, took his army back to Staten Island. Once more the Americans thought that surely Howe would then go up the Hudson, and Washington even changed the position he held so that he might follow him. But still the British did not adopt the expected plan. The fleet of boats was kept continually moving and changing, so that at one time it seemed as if the British had started for Boston, then up the Hudson, then again for Philadelphia. When Howe thought he had Washington completely puzzled, and the American army had been somewhat scattered, suddenly upon his fleet of 228 vessels he quickly embarked 18,000 men for Philadelphia. To increase Washington's confusion still more, he wrote a letter to Burgoyne, in which he declared he was about to sail for Boston and the messenger who bore the letter was directed to fall into the hands of the Americans. This was a common device, and Washington himself employed the same method of puzzling his enemies, as we shall soon learn. However, General Washington was not to be fooled in this instance, and as soon as he learned of Howe's departure, he quickly assembled his army and started post-haste across New Jersey, although all the time he thought the British general was merely trying to deceive him and as soon as the Americans had been withdrawn a sufficient distance from the Hudson, he would turn back again and go to the aid of John Burgoyne. On the last day of July, 1777, Washington received word that Howe's fleet had arrived off the Delaware River, 
and the Americans moved up to Germantown. But the very next day word came that the British fleet had set sail again. At first Washington believed that Howe had now gone back to New York, and he even prepared to send hastily back a part of his own army. But after a few days had intervened, word came that the British fleet had sailed for the south. What could be the meaning of that? At once it was concluded that Howe meant to attack Charleston, and as it was impossible for the little American army to march several hundred miles to the southward in time to arrive at the threatened town before the Redcoats could come, it was thought best to march as swiftly as possible back to New York and make an attack upon that city, which Clinton was guarding with a force of 7,000 men. But on the 25th of August, after word had been received of the successful fight at Bennington, and word also was soon to come of Arnold's success against St. Ledger, it was learned that Howe had landed his forces on the shore of Chesapeake Bay. Swiftly Washington advanced to Wilmington, but no battle occurred there except with words, for each side sent forth a proclamation to the people of the surrounding region, but for the most part Tories still remained Tories, and Whigs did not give up their convictions. It was too late now for people to change their minds. Howe, with his army, began the march to Philadelphia, and Washington, although he had only about half as many men as Howe had, decided to fight. Whether of his own accord he decided to do this, or whether he did so because of the clamor of the people for him to do something, is not known. Perhaps he thought he could, in this way, cripple Howe's army, or hold it at Philadelphia, and prevent it from going to the aid of Burgoyne, whom now he firmly believed to be destined to fail utterly in his great invasion. At all events, at Chad's Ford, in the Brandywine, he took his stand. The shores were rough and thickly wooded, the ground in the rear was high, and the waters of the stream below the ford were swift, so that, as far as the position was concerned, it seemed strong enough to check even the brave and well-drilled redcoats and hessians. But men are as necessary as cannon and rocky shores, and the Americans were not yet sufficiently trained to be able to make a determined stand before the ranks of an army they had always from boyhood feared. So when, on the 11th of September, 1777, Howe's army advanced, the same tactics were employed that had won the Battle of Long Island. And although Sullivan's men, who extended two miles up the shore, fought desperately and heroically, the brave band was pushed back, and the British in overwhelming numbers advanced, and the Battle of Brandywine was lost by the Americans, and more than a thousand of the Continentals would never fight again. Yet so heroic had been the struggle that some claim that the victorious Redcoats had lost even a greater number of men than had their foes. However, they had won the battle, and many of the frightened Whigs of the region fled to the mountains for safety, while fear and consternation prevailed on every hand in Philadelphia. The retreat of the Americans was in good order, in spite of their defeat, and on the following day, when they were at Chester, many were eager to renew the conflict. This, Washington was too wise to permit, but for two weeks his troops had so bothered the line of Howe's advance that it was not until September 26, 1777, that he entered the city. The great hope of the American leader had been that by harassing the Redcoats, Howe might be kept where he was and no aid be sent to the sadly beset Burgoyne. And though he had lost the battle in carrying out this purpose, Washington succeeded wonderfully in holding back the invading army as he did. One of these skirmishes particularly deserves notice. 
Mad Anthony Wayne had been placed in command of 1,500 men by Washington and ordered to annoy the Redcoats and try to seize a part of their baggage train. Near Paoli, Wayne found a quiet and, as he thought, hidden spot for his camp and was reinforced by about 1,800 men, the most of them from Maryland. He thought he was safe from the enemy, but some dastardly Tories went to the British camp and informed Howe of Wayne's hiding place, and also told him just how many men Wayne had in his force. Howe quickly determined to surprise the Patriots, and ordered General Gray, who was familiarly known as the No-Flint General, because he was accustomed to order his men to remove their flints, and so be compelled to use their bayonets, with a sufficient body to break up this camp and seize the men. The night was dark and stormy, and Gray advanced stealthily, like a thief in the night, having first told his men that they were to use their bayonets and were to give no quarter. The pickets of Wayne's camp were overcome and stabbed, and then the force rushed upon the unsuspecting men. In the light of the campfires the patriots could be plainly seen, while the storm and darkness concealed the attacking party, which seemed to be rushing upon them from every side. Though the brave men attempted to defend themselves, they were soon thrown into confusion. One hundred fifty were butchered or wounded, half as many more taken prisoners, some of whom were even stabbed after they had surrendered. And had it not been for the skill and courage of Mad Anthony, the entire body would have been destroyed. As it was, he led a masterly retreat, and succeeded, with those who escaped, in joining the army at Chester. General Howe was now in possession of Philadelphia, but down on the river were two strong forts, Fort Mercer on the Jersey side, and Fort Mifflin on an island in the river or bay. These must be taken, Howe decided, and when his brother, Admiral Howe, with his imposing fleet, appeared early in October, the general sent part of his army to assist in reducing these two places. This was Washington's opportunity, and he instantly resolved to make an attack upon the body left behind, just as he had done at Trenton almost a year before this time. The plan was excellent, and the opportunity as good, yet the Battle of Germantown was lost by the Americans, though they had won at Trenton. The British were in camp in the lower part of the village, Germantown, and Washington's plan was to capture or destroy the entire body. On the 3rd of October, 1777, soon after sunset, the march began. And soon after sunrise on the following morning, October 4, 1777, the attack was made. Desperately and bravely the men fought. In front and rear and flank the firing was terrific, but still the men fought on. There was a very heavy fog at the time, and one of the advancing lines led by Stephen, who was declared to be drunk and, at all events, after his trial by court-martial he was dismissed from the service, mistook Mad Anthony Wayne's men for the enemy and fired upon them. The confusion that followed was so great that soon the American army was retreating, having lost the battle and left 673 of their comrades dead or wounded upon the field, while the loss of the British was 535. It is said that the genius of Washington and the daring of his men in the Battle of Germantown did as much to bring France to the aid of the struggling colonies as did the surrender of the boastful John Burgoyne. At all events, the American soldiers were learning very rapidly how to fight, and although the Redcoats held Philadelphia, the ragged and despised army of Continentals seemed as far from giving up as ever. Of course, the Howes now took the two forts with comparative ease, though in the first attack on Fort Mercer, the Hessians suffered a very severe loss, that of Count Dunnop and four hundred men. 
but after a few weeks had passed and some six thousand soldiers from new york had come to their aid the british succeeded both forts fell and not only philadelphia but the delaware river was in their possession the winter was now at hand and active fighting must cease in philadelphia with every comfort with the friendship of the tories and almost everybody in the town seemed to be on the tory side then with gay festivities the british soldiers passed the winter days on the other hand out at valley forge a little place on the schuylkill river near the present city of norristown the patriots were to endure a terrible winter many were without shoes on their feet the snow and ice causing intense suffering half starved poorly clothed the little patriot army waited ready at any moment to attack their enemies if they should move out of the city but the redcoats were too comfortable to move and so the long days passed in pleasure for one army and in indescribable suffering for the other congress too had fled from philadelphia at the coming of howe and now were at lancaster they had voted additional powers to washington but in his camp they seemed almost like a farce the only bright spots in the year were the surrender of burgoyne and the good work which the rough but kind-hearted baron steuben was doing in drilling and aiding the frost-bitten hungry but still determined soldiers in camp with washington at valley forge in philadelphia the british had a large prison into which the unfortunate stragglers from the american camp were cast and in the intense and bitter feelings of the times it was hardly to be expected that very much of gentleness or tenderness should be displayed certain it is that the feelings of both whig and tory became greatly intensified during the experiences of that terrible winter the character of the struggle perhaps can best be shown by a few authentic incidents selected from the records of the times in a house on second street philadelphia directly opposite that occupied by general howe dwelt william and lydia dara members of the society of friends and like many of the quakers opposed on principle to the war this opposition however did not prevent them from having sympathy and though many quietly took sides with the redcoats others had no less a feeling of interest in the struggling patriots among the latter were william dara and his wife lydia but their quiet manners led the british to look upon them as they did upon others of that peace-loving body and so no one suspected them of any love for the colonies one day early in december seventeen seventy seven a british officer entered their house and his familiar manner at once disclosed his acquaintance with the household to lydia dara he explained that he desired to use one of her spare rooms that very evening as a meeting-place for some of his friends who would remain with him until a late hour in the night be sure lydia he said that your family are all in bed at an early hour when our guests are ready to leave the house i will myself give you notice that you may let us out and extinguish the fire and the candles the company met in the room as the british adjutant general had desired and by eight o'clock the daras were in bed but lydia could not sleep for her thoughts were of the poor continentals and of this group of men in her own house whom she suspected to be plotting against the patriots so strong became this feeling that at last she crept out of bed and along the hallway until she stood outside the door of the room in which the officers were assembled and listened the desperate plight of washington and his men quieted any compunction she had as to what she was doing and soon she heard discussed the outlines of a plan for an attack on the continentals which by its suddenness would find washington's men unprepared and so great results were expected to be accomplished having learned of the project lydia made her way back to bed 
but not to sleep. She was thinking of the words she had just heard, and how her countrymen might be warned of their peril. At last there came a knock on her door, to which she did not respond until for the third time it had been repeated. Then she arose, dressed herself, and saw her guests depart. Again she returned to her bed, though sleep was not to be had, but with the coming of the morning she had formed her plan. Flour was to be had at Frankfurt Mills, and with a bag in her hands, after having obtained a pass from General Howe himself, she started on her long walk, for the mills were five miles away. At last she arrived there, left her bag to be filled with meal, and started swiftly toward the outpost of the Americans not far away. Before she arrived she met an American officer, Colonel Craig, to whom she revealed what the British were plotting for the following day, and begged of him to see that they were thwarted in their plans, and her own name kept secret. Then she walked back home over the five miles of rough road, carrying with her the bag of meal. How well her warning words were heeded the British learned on the following day, when after their march to the American camp they found the patriots so prepared that the only thing to be done by the redcoats was to march back to Philadelphia again. Lydia herself from her windows watched the march of the returning redcoats, and when the adjutant general stopped at her house, naturally her fears were not quieted. Were any of your family up, Lydia, on the night when I received company in this house? he inquired. They all retired at eight o'clock. It is very strange, said the general. You, I know, Lydia, were asleep, for I knocked three times at your door before you heard me. Yet it is certain we were betrayed. I am altogether at a loss to conceive who could have given the information of our intended attack to Washington. On arriving at his encampment we found his cannon mounted, his troops under arms, and so prepared at every point to receive us, that we have been compelled to march back without injuring our enemy, like a parcel of fools. But Lydia Dara did not feel called upon to tell him all she knew. One of the most famous of the daring men in the American camp was Colonel Allen McLean. His exploits in securing forage and cutting off the foraging parties of the British read more like a romance than reality. Just before Howe departed from Philadelphia to sail for England, leaving Sir Henry Clinton in command of the troops, the British and their sympathizers in the city had a very elaborate tournament and ball, which was known as the Michianza. There was a parade of gaily decked vessels on the river, a march of the troops, a tournament, and then a very elaborate dinner and dance. Learning of the plan, this bold colonel, with 150 of his followers as bold as he, resolved to break up the festivities of nothing more, and succeeded in reaching the abatis in the front of the British works, the men all carrying camp kettles filled with material which would burst into a blaze the moment it was fired. After the men had gained the place in the darkness, the signal was given, and in an instant the entire line of the abatis burst into flames. The long alarm roll of the British drums informed the soldiers engaged in the festivities of their danger, and they speedily rushed forth to drive back the army which they thought was attacking the city. The little force of McLean was quickly scattered, but all succeeded in making their way back to camp. Major Talmadge was one of the most trusty of Washington's men. He it was who afterward had charge of the execution of Major Andre, the young officer who was so very popular with all that winter in Philadelphia, and one of the leaders in the Michianza. Major Talmadge, with his division of cavalry, was stationed at the time between Valley Forge and Philadelphia, in order that he might keep the Americans informed of the doings of the British, and at the same time cut off stragglers from the camp of the enemy. 
One day, hearing that a young girl had gone into town to sell eggs and quietly to receive a message for the Americans, the Major resolved to meet her and learn what she had found out. So leaving his detachment at Germantown, he set forth alone in the direction of the British lines. Dismounting at a tavern from which he could see far down the road towards the city, he waited for the messenger to come. As soon as he saw her, he told her who he was, and was soon listening to her tale, when he was suddenly told the British light horse were coming. From the doorway he could plainly see the redcoats in pursuit of his patrols, and instantly was aware that he himself had not a moment to waste. While he swiftly prepared to mount his own horse, the young girl interrupted him and begged him to save her from the British. Instantly ordering and helping her to mount behind him and to keep fast hold upon himself, the Major and his companion rode swiftly away for Germantown, followed by the cries and shouts and shots of the pursuing enemy. For three miles the pursuit was kept up, and then the Major and the messenger gained the protection of his force and were safe. Mary Knight was another brave woman who through the deep snows often made her way to the American camp, bringing food to the men and medicine for the sick. She frequently distinguished herself as a market woman, and so passed the outposts of the British successfully. At one time she concealed her own brother, General Worrell, on whose head the British had set a price, in a cider hogshead in her cellar. There she kept him safely hidden for three days, feeding him through the bung of the hogshead, and though parties of the redcoats searched the house four different times, they never once discovered the hiding place of the hated rebel. Young Lafayette, whose heart had been stirred by the story of America's wrongs, had come from France to the aid of the struggling people, and was in charge of a division, and had his own quarters at the home of a Tory Quaker. This Quaker, it would be hardly just to call him a friend, informed General Clinton of the Marquis's whereabouts and habits, and the British commander at once formed a plan by which he hoped to capture the young Frenchman and his followers, and he very nearly succeeded in his project. So silently and stealthily did his men advance that the first intimation Lafayette had of their presence was the sight of their scarlet coats among the trees near the house. Soon it was learned that the British had almost surrounded the place, and but one way of retreat lay open. Instantly Lafayette arranged to escape by that. He ordered some of his men to act as if they were about to attack the British, and if they should succeed in holding the enemy back for a few minutes, then the others were to make good their retreat. This movement was carried out, and while the British halted and prepared to defend themselves against what in their surprise they thought to be an attack upon themselves, the desperate body of Americans succeeded in escaping, even the men who had pretended to be ready to attack the Redcoats also succeeding at the last in joining their comrades. Before this chapter is brought to a close, it is fitting that a word should be spoken concerning the flag of the new nation. On June 14, 1777, Congress had resolved that the flag of the thirteen United States be thirteen stripes, alternate red and white, and that the Union be thirteen stars, white in a field of blue, representing a new constellation. Up to this time flags of various colors and designs had been carried, though it is claimed that a flag of thirteen stripes was unfurled when the Continental Army was organized January 1st, 1776, and that the crosses of St. George and St. Andrew were emblazoned on a blue canton, instead of the stars that came later. Different parts of the colonies had carried different flags, and there was the pine tree flag, the rattlesnake flag, and various others of strange device. The flag which Congress adopted in 1777 
was said by some to have been that proposed by John Adams, while others claim the entire flag was borrowed from the coat of arms of the Washington family. Betsy Ross, now famous, probably made the first official flag, though that raised by young Colonel Gansevoort and his men at Fort Schuyler in August 1777 was the first to appear before an enemy and flaunt its defiance. John Paul Jones on the Ranger was the first to carry it on the sea, and the first battle on land which it appeared was that of Brandywine, September 11, 1777. At first a new stripe and a new star were added to the flag with the reception of each new state, and, in 1795, after Vermont and Kentucky were received into the Union, the flag consisted of fifteen stars and fifteen stripes. This was the flag which was carried during the War of 1812, but in 1818 Congress adopted the plan of having thirteen stripes with a star for every state. A new star was to be added with the reception of each new state. This is said to have been the suggestion of Captain Reed, the naval hero, and to his good taste the modern flag is due. There were congressmen who desired to have a goddess of liberty or an eagle above the stripes, but what a bungling piece of work that would have made. The flag itself has had a good history, and if its power continues to be as marked as its beauty, none of us will ever have cause to be ashamed of it. End of chapter 23